Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is another one that was suggested several times in the beginning of 2020. This is the case of 29-year-old Peyton Houston. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Peyton Houston was born and raised in Trustville, Alabama, and was a Southern belle through and through, and she had the charm and the wit to prove it. If you ever saw her, she had a smile on her face, and she was going to make sure that you left with a smile on yours, too. She came from a big, tight-knit family with two brothers and a sister, and as they grew up, their bond just got tighter and tighter, which is one of the reasons it hit them all extremely hard when seemingly out of nowhere, after graduating high school, Peyton fell victim to a serious drug addiction. And not just any drug addiction, she was addicted to heroin. This was so unlike her. She'd always been so happy and optimistic, and it just seemed out of character. But her addiction got really bad, and her health went downhill really quickly. She actually wound up in the hospital with endocarditis, which is an infection of the inner lining of your heart. It's not uncommon among intravenous drug users because dangerous bacteria has an entry point right into the bloodstream through the injection site and the broken skin around it. This infection was serious, so serious that doctors didn't expect her to live, and it all seemed so unreal. How did this happen? Why did this happen? No one saw this coming for her. She didn't seem like the kind of girl who wound up in this situation, if you want to believe what the stigma of drug users paints them to look like. But this was their reality. Faced with having to say goodbye to their daughter, Peyton's family was beyond devastated, but enter Dr. Anna Worth. When it felt like all hope was lost, Dr. Worth stepped in and stopped at nothing to save Peyton, and it worked. Peyton made a full recovery, and it was so miraculous that her recovery quickly became one of the most heartwarming stories of the Christ Health Center, the center that saved her life. 
In a feature on their website, Peyton's quoted as saying, I was in a very bad place and had long since lost hope that I was worthy of love or healing, but Dr. Anna Worth proved me wrong. She invested time with me and showed me over and over that she cared. I truly believe that God's kindness through this wonderful stranger saved my life. Dr. Worth is quoted as saying, I met Peyton and I saw myself, except for a few unfortunate decisions and the obvious grace of God, our roles could have easily been reversed. Peyton shared her story and it changed my heart. Perhaps for the first time, I really saw that patients are people. And this young addict, she was someone's daughter, sister and friend. She became my friend. What everyone expected to be the end of Peyton's life wound up being the beginning and it fueled her faith and passion for her future. She was clean, she was sober, she was excited for her second chance at life, and all she wanted to do was live it in the arms of the family that loved and supported her through her darkest moments, and that's exactly what she did. She took this new chance at life and got a job at expedited trucking doing office work and became an instant staple of the company. It was hard not to fall in love with her positive outlook on life and her enthusiasm for her faith and everyone's overall happiness. On December 20th of 2019, she went to work like any other day. She'd call her mom when she got there, when she went on her break, and when she left work. She was constantly in contact with her parents, and some people felt like this was a bit much, but they'd been through hell and back together, and frankly, they were her best friends. That evening, after work, instead of going home, she headed to a co-worker's house to hang out for a hot minute before they headed out to a local restaurant and bar in Birmingham called The Tin Roof. They were going to see a band play at 10.30. This bar is super low-key with indoor and outdoor seating, picnic tables, casual food, and cute little strings of light to add to the vibe. They're known around town for their strict security policies and turning away anyone underage, and frankly, even turning you away if your license is expired, even if you look well over 21. It's a place where people felt safe and could go to unwind and enjoy some music, and that's exactly what Peyton and her co-workers planned to do that night. It's unknown exactly what time Peyton and her co-workers left the house that evening, but Peyton left her car at the house and carpooled with them down to the tin roof. The band was set to start at 10.30, but according to ABC 33, one of Peyton's co-workers sees her leaving the bar with two heavyset African-American males that she didn't recognize around 10.45. That's just 15 minutes after the music had started. No one went after her, and as far as we know, no one called or texted her to see if everything was okay, if she was coming back to the bar, or if anyone had tried to figure out how she was getting home. The rule, we come together, we leave together, did not happen that night. At some point, her co-workers leave the bar and go home, obviously without Peyton. The following morning, Peyton's parents wake up to realize that her car isn't in the driveway, and she's not in her bedroom either. They tried calling and texting her, but got no response. Peyton had plans that day with her sister and her best friend, and they thought surely she'd show up for that or at least reach out, but she didn't. Her parents and siblings began reaching out to everyone who knew Peyton, and one of her brothers got a response from one of the co-workers she was out with the night before, saying that they'd gotten a text from Peyton around 12.14 a.m. that had them worried. According to the co-worker, she hadn't seen the text until she'd woken up that morning. The text read, I don't know who I'm with, so if I call, please answer. I feel in trouble. 
The text had some grammatical errors, and the I feel in trouble not only concerned everyone, but also kind of puzzled them as well. What did she mean by I feel in trouble? Peyton was obviously uncomfortable and to the point where she felt like she needed to reach out and let someone know, and it looks like she might have been setting up some kind of escape plan if needed. Her brother tells ABC News that Peyton was the kind of girl who could handle herself, so the fact that she was reaching out for help was a major red flag. With that, her brother, her dad, and this co-worker all went down to the police station and officially reported Peyton missing. The co-worker told the police about her leaving the bar that night at 10.45 p.m. and the two men she saw her leaving with, telling them that it seemed like Peyton had left willingly. And the department goes to work. They want to get her face out in the media. They want to look at the security footage from the tin roof to see if they can ID these two heavyset African-American men that the co-worker says she saw Peyton leave with. And they want to know what happened between 10.45 p.m. and 12.14 a.m. in that hour and a half for Peyton to go from willingly leaving the bar to reaching out and letting her co-worker know that she felt in trouble. By December 22nd, you couldn't turn on the news in Alabama without seeing Peyton's face. Flyers were put up all over town, and her family was speaking with any media outlet they possibly could, making sure that everyone in the area was on the lookout for their daughter. At this point, they still hadn't heard from Peyton. Her phone had either died or been turned off, and her bank account hadn't been touched. All major red flags, and they knew something was wrong. Her sister posted on Facebook that Peyton wasn't the kind of girl who just stopped communicating with anyone, let alone stopped showing up. I mean, she called her parents multiple times a day. Her family knew that if she could reach out, that she would have by now. And because she hadn't, there's a pit in their stomach that won't go away. On January 23rd, Crime Online, which is a pretty big publication, picks up Peyton's story and says that police are working on getting the security footage from the bar. And they do, but they don't release it. The community is kind of in an uproar about this because they want to do anything they can to help. If these two men are on security footage, they want to help police try and identify them, and they can't understand why police aren't giving them that opportunity, which then sparks the speculation train. Are they not releasing the footage because they already know who these two men are and they don't want to let the guys know that police are on to them? Or are these two guys not on the footage? And if not, what does that mean about this coworker's statement? The speculation around this footage grows incessantly the longer it isn't released, but the police aren't saying a word about it for now. After Crime Online picks up Peyton's story, so does People Magazine, and this case that was once a local story for about four whole days turns national, and by Christmas Eve, the entire country is wondering, where in the world is Peyton Houston? 
Peyton's disappearance had been plastered on the sides of telephone poles, businesses, the local news, and even national news at this point, and still no one had come forward saying that they were the ones who left the bar with her. And if nothing nefarious had happened, you'd assume they'd want to clear their names. But they hadn't, and that pit in the stomach of Peyton's friends and family grew deeper and deeper. Her parents were hoping for a Christmas miracle that Peyton might be found in time to spend the holiday with her family members who were flying in from all over the country, but Christmas came and went with no signs of her. In the background of an interview her parents had with WVTM, you can see Peyton's red stocking, embroidered with a P, hung up next to everyone else's. The presents purchased for her throughout the year were wrapped and ready for her underneath the Christmas tree. But Peyton wasn't there, and her family was forced to try and celebrate Christmas with a noticeable hole in all of their hearts. What was supposed to be the happiest day of the year quickly became the most ominous. If Peyton could reach out, they knew that she would. If she could have made it to Christmas, they knew she would have. But she hadn't, and they knew now more than ever that she couldn't. Despite all remaining hope, they knew in their hearts that something bad had happened to Peyton. They just didn't know what, and they still didn't know where she was. On December 26th, the speculation about that security footage got an upgrade when AL.com reported that while police have seen it, they tell the outlet that they're pretty much in the same place that they were when she was first reported missing, that they don't have any other leads and have exhausted the ones that they'd had up until this point, but that they'll continue to investigate and try to develop new leads. If they're indeed stuck, everyone wants to know why they won't just release this footage. Why won't they allow the public to help them? Again, people wonder if the men are even in this footage at all. But now a new theory emerges that maybe police know way more than they're letting on and that this statement to the media was in an effort to try and throw any potential suspects off of the fact that they were on to them. The police continue their statement to AL.com and describe Peyton's case as strange and that they're still not sure who the last person she spoke to was, which leads to another spiral of speculation. What makes Peyton's case so strange? What makes it more strange than any of the other cases they've worked where they didn't use that specific word to describe it? Because all the public knows at this point is that she went to a bar to listen to some music with coworkers, and that 15 minutes after the band started playing, a coworker says she saw Peyton leaving with two heavyset African-American males. It seems obvious that they know something that everyone else doesn't, especially when you take into account the second part of their statement, where they said they weren't sure who Peyton last spoke with. We know she texted that co-worker at 12.14 a.m. saying that she didn't know who she was with and that she felt in trouble. But is there another communication from her phone that we don't know about? Or is this just semantics about the word spoke? Do police have evidence that she did, in fact, leave the bar with someone and in turn know that the person she left with or anyone thereafter would have spoken to her, they just don't know who? 
On December 27th, Crime Stoppers announces that they're offering a $5,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest of whoever is responsible for Peyton's disappearance. And on top of that, the whole ass governor steps in and doubles it, meaning there is now a $10,000 reward for credible information leading to a break in Peyton's case. They even make a point to ask the public to call in anything, whether it's something you heard, you think you might have seen, or something you feel might be insignificant, because what might seem insignificant to you might be significant to police. They want to know all the information floating around town because there's a lot of it. Rumors of an argument between the co-worker earlier in the night about Peyton's debit card possibly being found on the floor of the bar. It's all circling, but none of that is being mentioned in the media. Crime Stoppers assures WBRC that all tipsters will remain completely anonymous, saying no one will ever ask you to the DA, police will never interview you, you will be paid a cash reward in as little time as one week. On December 30th, with still no signs of Peyton, her family's church, Clear Branch United Methodist, holds a candlelight visual where a worship band plays and the community pours in to pray for her safe return. But everyone's heart sinks when later that night, CBS 42 reports a large police presence at 33rd North, and it's a death investigation. Everyone sits and waits, knowing nothing about the situation, but wondering if this might be it, if they had finally found Peyton. But the worry is short-lived when a woman comments on Facebook saying that the death investigation was not about Peyton, that it was actually her cousin, a male, who was found deceased in his home. And while this is devastating and heart-wrenching for that man's family, for Peyton's family, there was still some hope. On New Year's Eve, WBRC releases a new report about that footage from the bar. This time, they report that it wasn't helpful to police because they didn't find anyone matching the description of those two heavyset African-American males that the co-worker described on the footage at all. Which sets the community off into a tailspin, questioning this coworker from every angle. People start to wonder if she might be involved, if she might be trying to throw off police, and frankly, it gets pretty nasty. So nasty that this coworker actually gets an attorney to kind of mediate things, and the attorney gives a statement to ABC 3340. It reads, Grace, the co-worker, has been exceptionally cooperative with law enforcement's multiple agencies that have been involved in the investigation of this case and has told them everything she remembers from that night. She is a witness and nothing more, and I have been assured by law enforcement that there is not one scintilla of evidence connecting Grace to any crime being investigated. She is a very young lady whose father asked me to help the family and Grace navigate the process with her. I have been involved solely to facilitate the communication between Grace and law enforcement. When you're in your 20s and lose a good friend under these circumstances, it is incredibly anxiety-producing and unnerving. 
It's a shame that social media bashers have elected to paint her as complicit in some way. Comments along these lines are not only untrue and baseless, but are hurtful to Grace, who lost a dear friend in this process and insensitive to Peyton's family and Grace and need to stop. We should all come together to support the family and friends of Peyton to assist them in getting through this terribly tragic loss. The fact that an attorney was brought in furthered some people's concerns about said co-worker, but the fact that her attorney was confident and bold enough to include the statement, I have been assured by law enforcement that there is not one scintilla of evidence connecting Grace to any crime being investigated, is proof enough to most that they were headed down the wrong rabbit hole, and for the most part, the speculation surrounding her seems to end there. In the end, bringing the attorney in winds up being the right decision for her, regardless of whether or not it initially raised some eyebrows. Things go really quiet for about two days until January 2nd of 2020, when neighbors around a house at 215 Chapel Drive in Hueytown notice another large police presence. This was a residential road and police cars lined up and down it on both sides. Now, we've seen this before and it wound up not being related to Peyton, but this time, Hueytown police weren't the only police there. Along with officers from Hueytown, there are police vehicles from both Trussville and Birmingham, where Peyton is from and where she went missing from. And this time, it's hard not to jump to the conclusion that this might be related to Peyton. The house on Chapel Drive is old and falling apart. Even the mailbox is falling apart. And there's garbage all over the backyard and even some discarded and broken furniture. It's a mess, but no one currently lived there. An elderly man had recently moved out due to his family having concerns for his health, so it had been vacant for a little while now. News stations from all surrounding counties start showing up and interviewing anyone willing to talk and also streaming live feeds of the activity. A neighbor told the Trustville Tribune that police with flashlights had canines searching the backyard and that one officer even asked if anyone had a shovel. ABC 3340 is also there to report on the activity and quotes an officer as saying, No body was found. It's complicated. No body? No one knew why anyone was out there, but now police are saying that no body was found. Were they looking for a body? Officers were on scene until 9.30 that night when they put up police tape around the entire property and left an officer there overnight to make sure that the scene stayed secured. By 9 o'clock the next morning, police were back on scene with warrants in hand and Carol Robinson from AL.com reported on every single moment in real time. She reports that by 10 a.m., the Birmingham Homicide Unit pulled up and the K-9 units were back. By 10.40 a.m., a Hueytown Crime Scene Unit had showed up. Soon after, several evidence tents were put up behind the house and everyone's hearts sank. They knew that this meant that they didn't want anyone seeing what they were about to uncover. After the tents went up, a van pulled up, blocking the view of what was going on inside of them from anyone watching the street, and many of those live feeds went blank. 
At 11.30 a.m., Carroll reports that the Birmingham CSI has joined police at the scene and that an excavation is about to begin, which means something or someone is buried. Not long after, the medical examiner and a coroner arrives on scene, and just before 2 p.m., Carol Robinson of AL.com reports that human remains have been found. A press conference follows almost immediately, and the DA confirms that the body of a female was found in a shallow grave wrapped in a sheet behind the vacant house on Chapel Drive. The coroner will have to examine the body for identification, but at this point, everyone just knows. With the presence of Birmingham and Trustville authorities, no one can think of anyone else this could be besides Peyton. And by 6 p.m., there is no more wondering. Just two weeks after she was reported missing, it's confirmed that the body found buried in the backyard was 29-year-old Peyton Houston. It was a devastating blow to her family. All hope that they'd held out that she would be found alive was gone. And now more than ever, they had more questions than answers. How did she get there? Who put her there? And what happened to her? As of yet, they still don't know her cause of death. They just know that she couldn't have put herself there. Her mother posted on Facebook saying, Our family didn't get the news we hoped for, but I'm grateful that Peyton is coming home. We don't have to go through the torture of not knowing what's happening to her or where she could be. God answers our prayers. He brought her home to us. I pray that if she was already in heaven, I just had to know so my heart could put closure to the missing nightmare. Peyton is eternally home with Jesus. Our family appreciates all prayers, love, and support from the Trustville community and around the world for Peyton. She touched the hearts of many in our efforts to bring her home, and my heart is touched by everyone's love for our family. God will be our strength in the hard days ahead as we go through finding out what happened and life without Peyton. Continue to pray for our family. We're so thankful to you all. Her brother wrote, Where to begin? You were my big sister. You were a part of the family puzzle. You supported me in everything I ever dreamed of, even when I didn't think it was possible. You were truly a light in the darkness, and it still doesn't feel real that I won't ever see you walk through the door anymore. For those of you that didn't get the pleasure to meet Peyton, she was full of life. She was always smiling and always making others laugh, and not just the simple chuckle, but the full-on belly laugh. She was one of the strongest people I know. Her sister-in-law added that Peyton was a fighter and that now it was the time to fight for justice for her. And that's exactly what her family did. The family and the community got together on a mission to do whatever they could to make sure that people knew that even though Peyton's body had been recovered, the fight for justice for her wasn't over. In an effort to make sure that people didn't forget about her, her uncle tells WBRC that they intend to wrap every telephone pole and tree down Main Street with a yellow ribbon in her honor. And those yellow ribbons were seen everywhere, including at the entrance to the Christ Health Center, the center that had saved her life just years before. 
everyone invested in Peyton's case all around the world at this point starts doing their own investigation into what happened to her that night, and they start wondering what exactly led police to that house in the first place. And the DA tells KIRO7 that it was actually multiple tips that came in through Crime Stoppers and that this house was just the last of three locations that they had searched. WBRC reports that one or more people will be getting the reward money for the tips that led to finding Peyton, and those tipsters will remain anonymous. Which is great for them and for Crime Stoppers as a whole. If it wasn't for their organization allowing people to report tips anonymously, they may have never found Peyton. But we also now know that someone or someones know something more, but we don't know who those people are. The house she was found in also starts to come into question. Obviously, the elderly man who had moved out of the house couldn't have done this, but whoever did had to have known that the house was vacant and that they could hide a body there without being noticed. So is it a family member or a friend of the former occupant of this house? On January 6th, Peyton's initial autopsy is completed. And I say initial because more testing is needed. There were zero signs of physical trauma to her body that could tell the medical examiner how Peyton died. So now they have to send off more tests, which they expect might take four to six weeks to get the results of. No one expected this. Peyton was found in a shallow grave in the backyard of a vacant house. Everyone assumed homicide would be obvious at her autopsy, but it wasn't. And knowing that, the public starts to wonder if maybe drugs are involved. No one who knows Peyton could imagine her leaving that bar with anyone that she didn't know, but she did leave. And police note that there's no evidence to suggest that she left unwillingly, but no one can understand why it's not making any sense. Is it possible that she relapsed? No one wants to believe it, but the question still remains. Overdose isn't uncommon among recovered addicts who relapse and go back to their previous dosage prior to their recovery, but again, no one seemed to notice any signs that Peyton was struggling with her sobriety at all. With Peyton now found and whoever buried her body still out on the loose, authorities start telling the public to be more cautious when going out. They tell people to stay aware and that there's safety in numbers. They urge people to have a plan prior to going out and not to get into a vehicle with anyone you don't already know and trust. That self-defense classes don't hurt and neither does carrying a taser or some pepper spray. And no one can argue with that. Peyton's case progressed extremely quickly from December to January, and the coverage of Peyton's disappearance picked up at lightning speed. But after the police's warning to the public, we see a 10-day lull in reporting. However, on the morning of the 16th, police announce that they're about to hold a press conference. And when they do, they have a name. Alabama authorities want the public's help in locating a 50-year-old registered sex offender named Frederick Hampton. They've already pulled out warrants on him, and he's being charged with abuse of a corpse. They're confident this is the guy who buried Peyton in the backyard. And while he's being charged with that, he isn't being charged with her death. As of yet, they still don't know what her cause of death is, let alone the manner, manner being natural causes, accident, homicide, undetermined, etc. 
AL.com and Heavy.com both reported on what exactly got Hampton on the sex offender registry in the first place, and it is mortifying. In 1991, he and some other men were charged with first-degree rape and first-degree sodomy after a woman says she was abducted at gunpoint from a bus stop, taken to another location, and raped by seven men. He served 20 years, five months, and 26 days in jail before being released in March of 2012. Just three months later, he was arrested again for failing to register as a sex offender and given an additional two-year sentence, but it was suspended, meaning he didn't actually have to serve it unless he did something else, but he remained on probation. It turns out that Hampton was on police's radar long before Peyton's body was found. They'd actually held him on a 48-hour hold for suspicion of kidnapping on December 28th, but ultimately had to release him because they didn't have enough evidence to formally charge him. In this press conference, police say that they have evidence that Hampton was with Peyton on the 20th, the night she was at the Tin Ruth, and furthermore, that they were there together. So it sounds like the co-worker might have been telling the truth all along. WHNT reports that police say they know Peyton went with someone, which is pretty nonspecific, but when you put together that they believe Hampton was with Peyton at the tin roof and that she left with someone, we can reasonably deduce that they think the two left the bar together. But who's the second guy? The co-worker said that there were two men, right? They go on to say that after leaving the bar, Hampton and Peyton went to a house on McLean Street and that they have evidence that Peyton died in that house on the 21st, which begs the question, what evidence? Were there other people at the house that saw them together and saw her alive on the 21st? If so, are those the people who called into Crime Stoppers? If they have evidence that she died there, did they already do a search of that house? Did cadaver dogs alert? We just don't know. Officers say that Hampton's sex offender registry is currently up to date, but the address listed for him is not on McLean Street. So whose house did they go to? Whose house did Peyton die at? Obviously, these departments had been working on Peyton's case nonstop since she was reported missing and kept a lot of information close to the vest, and it looks like they did it for good reason. Because while they had Hampton on a hold on December 28th, now that he knows police are onto him, they can't find him. When Hampton was in their custody, they had no idea that Peyton had already been dead for a week and that she was buried in the backyard of one of Hampton's relatives' house. Yes, the house Peyton was found behind was the house of one of Hampton's relatives. He would have known that no one was living there and that he could bury Peyton there unnoticed. Peyton's mom posts a message on Facebook after the press conference saying, let's bring him back to his prison cell where he spent 20 years. He needs to be off the street before he puts someone else into a shallow grave like he did Peyton. 
A week and a half goes by and everyone is waiting on pins and needles. But on the 29th, news breaks that the U.S. Marshals busted down the door of another one of Hampton's relatives in Ohio, of all places, and that he was officially in custody. The next day, the coroner finally makes a ruling in the cause and manner of Peyton's death. Peyton's cause of death is listed as morphine and methamphetamine toxicity, commonly known as a speedball. Her death was ruled an accident. They finally had Hampton in custody, the man they're confident took her body from the house on McLean Street and buried her behind the house on Chapel Drive. But now her death is being ruled an accident? Accident or not, you still can't bury a body, and his charges of abuse of a corpse stuck. He was held without bond and was set to be extradited from Ohio back to Jefferson County, Alabama, where her body was found. For whatever reason, the extradition didn't happen until February 13th, but on March 10th, Hampton was back in court. I shit you not... At this hearing, this guy pled not guilty to all charges and was granted bond. And not like some intimidating kind of bond. He was given a $15,000 bond. Apparently, they didn't feel like this dude found in Ohio was a flight risk, but okay. AL.com reports that Peyton's mom pleaded with the judge not to issue one, that her daughter was gone and they couldn't get her back, but that they didn't want to see the same thing happen to anyone else. Hampton's attorney said that his client wasn't a flight risk because he was in Ohio well before the warrant was issued, which might be true, but that sounds like a technicality to me, considering he was held for two days on December 28th in regards to her case. He knew he was being looked into before he bolted to another state. Less than a week after Hampton was granted bond on March 16th of 2020, he posted it and he was released from jail pending trial and required to wear a GPS tracking ankle monitor. I looked as hard as I could to see if Hampton had any other hearings since he posted bond and I couldn't find reports of any, so I called down to the courthouse myself. According to the woman I spoke to, he is still pending a grand jury to see if he'll be indicted on his charges. And Peyton's family is left without any answers. In July, Peyton's mother posted something on Facebook that got a lot of heads turning. I'll read it to you. I will forever fight for justice for Peyton, and the knowledge I have and what we've learned throughout her journey in her case and other families that are going through the same corruption and cover-up. She wasn't some girl that took drugs and OD'd one night. She was murdered. Why did Peyton leave the bar with Hampton that night? How did she even come into contact with him? How did she wind up overdosing when she'd been sober for so long and no one saw any signs of her struggling? Is it possible those drugs were given to her against her will? This wouldn't be the first case that's happened in. Her mother clearly doesn't think that Peyton left that night on the premise to get drugs, so how did it get to that point? A rape kit was said to have been sent off for testing, but as of yet, either the results haven't come back or the police aren't saying what they are. Hampton remains out of jail, and the Trustville Tribune reports that if he's found guilty, he could face, and I quote, more than a year in jail. 
This man, with a history of violent crimes so heinous that he spent 20 years in prison and is required to be a part of a public registry, is out in the free world awaiting trial for the girl he buried in the backyard. As this case continues and progresses throughout the court system, I will be sure to update you. In honor of the courage it took for Peyton to reach out for help on the day she died, I'm going to be posting some location sharing and alert apps that you can download to try and protect yourself and keep track of your friends and loved ones, with their permission of course, as well as some really great self-defense products I've come across that you can keep with you in your purse or on your keychain. For all photos and maps pertaining to this case, check out Peyton's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me, and we talk about all of the questions surrounding this case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, which is today. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Mm-hmm.